This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us for Episode 60 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Vince Peeler. He's the manager of cyber intelligence services at Optum, one of the largest healthcare and services providers in the world. He shares his unlikely journey from a career as a naval aviator to cybersecurity and how lessons he learned in the military help inform his approach to cyber threats today. We'll also focus on the intelligence cycle and the role it can play in organizing and focusing the efforts of a cybersecurity team. Stay with us. My journey started really in the Navy and in aviation. Um, since I was a little boy, that's what I wanted to go do, fly jets in the, the military. I thought it would, it would be the Air Force, but the Air Force didn't need anybody. The Navy did. So that's why, how I ended up in the Navy. Uh, I'm glad that I did. I had a great time there. Uh, spent roughly 14 years in aviation. Hmm. Um, every jet I was assigned, originally it was S3B Vikings, and then later on, EA6B Prowlers, uh, kept going away. So I decided maybe I should go someplace uh, that had a more <laughs> secure future uh, and somewhere where I could kind of grow uh, my experience and use this collection ability that I was that I was gaining on those platforms and kind of what else can I do with that? And then so that's kind of how I went into the intelligence side. The Navy, it was great timing. The Navy came in with what they called information dominance warfare officer. So that's what I became, hmm. specialization in intelligence. Uh, so that's kind of how they they, breed, they kind of brought together into one community the cryptographic information warfare officers, the intelligence, uh, the traditional what we call IPs or uh, information professionals, which are that's your traditional IT folks, and meet meteorology all under one roof kind of kind of thing one community so that's kind of we had to do training across those you know basic trainings across those i started out fairly senior in the intel world so i quickly moved from analyst or watch officer into leading intelligence and that's kind of how i fell into this position where i'm at at optum but i first got started in the cyber realm well for whatever reason i was always the guy that ended up being in charge of IT systems on the aviation side. Hmm. I used to laugh about that because I'm my undergrad is psych. Um, and I was <laughs> sitting amongst with all these engineering majors and they're going, well, you be the computer guy. Like, <laughs> right. <'Cause laughs> like, of course. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like you're the engineering major. Like some of you are even computer engineers, you know, like engineering ma majors. No, no, they <laughs> Had enough of that. They wanted to do something different. So I'm like, sure, I could just do it. So I did. I learned a lot. I enjoyed it. But that led me to understand I could just see the changes. And and what I mean by that really is uh, my what I call my first real intel job was in counterterrorism at CENTCOM headquarters. And yeah. we deployed forward with special operations forces. And that's kind of where I really – what I – what I call growing up in the intelligence community. And I was, I feel very fortunate to have had that position. Not only did we get to lead things back at CENTCOM headquarters 
And that's kind of where the cyber bit came in because they were like, okay, we have all these different threats. What should we do? I was kind of the advocate for standing up a cyber media team, and we did. And I became the OIC after I came back from my Ford <laughs> deployments. Hmm. And we looked at the terrorist threat through cyberspace. And at that point, at that time, it was primarily a lot of uh, influence type stuff. That was back when Inspire Magazine was uh, big with uh, Anwar Al-Awlaki and Samir Khan. So following those target sets really gave me an appreciation for, you know, this kind of you're tracking people. Um, so that was the first time that that really kind of sunk in. I mean, we kind of talked about it when I was doing aviation, especially in the S3s. It was, you know, it, we were primarily trying to track submarines and again, a target you don't see. Mm. Uh, but it seemed it was still a sub. You didn't really think about the people initially. And I was younger. I didn't really think about it back then. Mm -hmm. uh, but on the terrorist side, it really was about people. And that's one of the things that I, I think cyber intelligence really brings to the cyber defense kind of thing is um, what I tell people at Optum is I'm here to talk about the people on the other side, the adversaries themselves. Yeah, the IT part is a tool for them. But the tools are used by the people, and that's kind of – I was just having a conversation with some of our leadership about this at Optum right <laughs> not too long ago, um, just about how it's interesting because the tools that are there get modified and used differently, and there's always some new way of doing it. And that's not based on the tool. That's not based on the design of it. It's, to, it's based on how a person can interpret and use that tool to get around de defenses. So that's what we find kind of really interesting. I had a kind of good conversation on that. Yeah. Um, so that's the kind of stuff that's kind of exciting about this field. Now, coming from that large headquarters kind of thing and then moving, really my last job in the Navy was monitoring ISR operations for manned ISR or EP3 operations glo globally, running dispersed teams against a huge target set. It really sunk into leading management. And that's kind of where we're going to lead into with with this. It's uh, managing that intelligence. Now, there's the cycle, and everybody kind of, you know, talks about the intelligence cycle. I see it as a management tool, not an operational tool, if that – hopefully that makes sense. Um, yeah. I see it as you're building an intel team. These are the elements that you need to concern yourself with. But – on a daily on a daily basis, I don't go. Well, now we need to move and proceed into the collection phase. You know, you don't really think of like it like that. Right. It's just the daily stuff that you do. And it's, but as I'm looking at how do I manage a team, I look at the different elements and say, do we have something that covers this? How are we going to proceed with the requirements with you know, the collection with the analysis, are we using the best analytical methods? Uh, so those kinds of questions. And really um, kind of been focusing on lately is how do we get better dissemination? Uh, yeah, there's a lot of automation that can happen. Uh, and that's when we're looking and doing a lot more of that. But how do we get people to really understand what it is that we're saying? We can automate tools and we can automate that flow of data. But when it comes to like leadership, higher up making strategic decisions, how do I make them understand what it is the threats are 
and where we're vulnerable. Now you can, yeah, you have the conversations around that, but really it's, I'm looking at different ways. How do we make that digestible? And uh, one of the ways I was looking at is micro learning and taking some of what I learned, uh, kind of a weird background, but my master's is in learning technologies, kind of building learning environments. And I kind of equate intelligence as a learning process when you go to dis- to the dissemination phase. Also in the analysis phase on the analyst, but really to get that outward, I see it as a learning process for whoever it is that you're giving it to, because there's different levels, of course. There's the network defenders like the SOC analysts. There's leadership trying to understand what the threats are so they can make budgetary decisions possibly on, hey, where's our gaps in our in our defenses? Is there something new out that we need to really be concerned with? So it's but how do you get it to them? Mm-hmm. Typically, most people default to words, whether they're on PowerPoint or like a Word document or a PDF or on a website of some sort. Um, yeah, you're pushing it to them. But th- if they're not really pulling it sometimes, uh, I, <laughs> it, it kind of shows up and you get asked the question that you just published something on a day and a half ago, right? So you know that it's not being ingested sometimes because of everything else. And it just be, kind of becomes noise in some regards. So how do you break through that? And that's kind of some of the things that uh, I've been thinking about lately is how do you make more bite-sized chunks that are easily digestible for for folks, whether that's in smaller products or maybe in videos or like this, a podcast or something that's, you know, in that couple of minute framework, that micro learning type of event. So that's that's some of the things that, you know, we've been kind of discussing uh, on a way of how do we move forward with that and how do we get beyond the word document or PDF or something like that, or the brief on PowerPoint. Well, I want to dig into some of the details of the intelligence cycle. Why don't we back up a little bit and just sort of describe uh, what is entailed in that? Um, You mentioned some of the steps, but can you take us through the five steps and, and what they mean? Yeah, I sure can. So, the biggest one really is going to start off with your uh, planning and direction, your requirements. Now, this can be kind of somewhat tri- tricky uh, for especially like organizations like corporations to understand because what you'll end up getting is I want intel. That happens a lot from what I've been able to gather from <laughs> talking with folks across the industry a little bit, um, different groups and stuff. Uh, but it's that kind of, but that's what drives it, everything. And why do I say that? Because I've seen this, whether it was in the intelligence community in the government or some of the conversations early on at Optum were numbers of products. I don't necessarily care about the numbers of products. What I care about is fulfilling the requirements. What is it that we need to do? And that's where this whole piece fits in. It's really what I call requirements-based metrics because they they love metrics in corporate America. So I tell them I need requirements-based. So did we fulfill the requirements? How well did we fill them? Fulfill them? And how did how did we do it? Like types of products or something more than just a conveyor belt number. Because if you, if you want to go to a conveyor belt, we'll produce a lot more reporting that won't get read and won't mean anything. But our numbers will look great, right? <laughs> you know. So, um, but then moving into the collection piece, this is, uh, you know, 
where you gather your data, what sources are you you're going to use? This is also where I like to talk about source validation. Not all sources are created equal. Uh, some sources are better than others, but how are you going to collect that? Just I'll throw something in that we're working with Recorded Future on, and that is we've made um, the collection requirements, the alerting through Recorded Future and with the help of uh, your analysts, kind of tailor those alerts to the requirements because we have them num numbered. So now we get alerting that is based when you get it on an email alert, hey, here, it satisfies this requirement. So we're trying to tie that back to even give some of that, hey, who's, you know, who's supplying the data for us? So it's some of that validation process begins there. Um, and then you're moving into the processing and exploitation phase. Uh, this is where you're trying to make sense of all the data that you've got, <laughs> as we're seeing. And I've, you know, there's lots of you know commentary around we're all drowning in in data. So um, yeah, that's true. And how do you make sense of that? So that's where that step is. Then there's the analysis and production phase. Uh, this is where you know you're making those products that we were talking about, no matter what kind of products they are. And really, some of the analysis and production. If it's just information like IOC feeds and stuff, you can automate some of that, and it kind of skips, skips through some of the analysis. Because uh, when I think of analysis, I'm thinking Intel analyst analysis that you know where you're using structured analytic techniques or some other method. And then you have the dissemination and integration phase, and then that's where we were talking about earlier about getting the information to the right people at the right times to make the right decisions. And then from there is the feedback and reevaluation phase. Hmm. Now, some people will talk about feedback happens across the cycle, and I kind of agree with that, uh, since I don't see it as a step one, two, three kind of cycle, but it's a management thing. I don't typically involve it at every step. I just know that it happens at every step. I just want to make sure that there there's a feedback method at each step. But it, it kind of hangs there on the evaluation point, and I just kind of – Make sure, like I said, I just use this as, hey, do we have what we need to make a, a you know, really solid intelligence team? Uh, so that's kind of where that happens. So those are the steps traditionally. Uh, some models, you know, change it. Some of them just go straight from collection to analysis. Sometimes the processing is broken out separate. I kind of like to break it out separate in the cyber world because of all the automation that we're trying to get through so we can weed through uh, some of those IOC type stuff and really get to the analysis phase. Can you go into that a little more? I'm particularly interested in uh, sort of how you dial in the balance between automation and uh, using your human assets. Here's the here's the tricky part. There's all there's a an unlimited number of IOC type threat feed data that you can get. Trying to figure out is the trick of how do you make that the most automated. We're doing some of that. Uh, we're looking at ways of increasing that with the help of some other types of systems. Uh, and we have a whole team for automation. And that's some of the stuff that we're working through now. Typically, what we'll try and do is use the automation and try and have them integrate off known threat actors that we're looking at or we're known to attack, for our case, healthcare, and not looking at other ones or older ones. Now, this is a big debate on what's an old IOC. Uh, so, you know, there's a, there's a, you ask 10 analysts, you'll probably get 10 different answers on what constitutes an old IOC. Some folks are in the, are in the camp of 
keep them forever. And I was kind of originally somewhat in that just for historical purposes until I finally realized over a, a year or so just how many we get. And then it ends up being too much, hmm. um, especially in some of the more sensor systems. So you have to kind of figure out a balance between, you know, keeping some historical ones for reference as you can track. Cause I, I like doing analysis over time so you can see trending, right. And progression, because that kind of helps me think about what will happen in the future. But at the same time, it, you have uh, to really determine what, how much can your systems handle. Um, and which it, what we found out is uh, it can handle quite a bit, but at the same time, it slows everything down. Uh, so maybe it's just our systems. I don't think, I don't think so. But you're trying to keep them, keep them sharp. And we're really kind of, we've kind of fluctuated on our thoughts on how long to, to keep them. And so it kind of seems to be uh, one of those moving targets for us. Uh, and I kind of agree, you know, as things change over time and your automation uh, changes and your systems change, I, I think the best policy really is to uh, keep revisiting that. I don't know if everybody else's systems change, but ours, you know, as we add more things and add, trying to add more capability, I think going in and looking at that is a, a good thing. It takes time on the front end, but I think it helps alleviate some of that time on the back end. And what what do you have to deal with? I, I suspect uh, because you're in the healthcare environment that you also have to deal with a lot of regulations. Oh yeah, lots of regulations in, in healthcare. The uh, compliance side is seems to be pretty huge at Optum. Um, uh, luckily, I don't have to worry with audits and stuff too much. Sometimes they ask some questions that somebody will come ask me about about how we deal with certain threats or something of that nature, but not typically, uh, thank goodness. But there are lots uh, of different types. You know, there's HIPAA, of course. You know, there's just the standard PHI. Uh, for the most part, that has a lot to do with reporting and when do we report if we were breached in, in some, some way. Of course, the Department of Health and Human Services has their uh, wall of shame. <laughs> so, that's the big thing. That's a big driver, right? Not be on the wall of shame. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but it also makes a good reference point as to how are breaching breaches occurring. And that's something else that we do track. Um, it's Yeah, it sounds kind of funny, but at the same time, it's not. Uh, healthcare is targeted a lot. And, and I've thought about this quite a bit. And here's what I kind of come up. And I, there's no real hard facts on, on this, just talking to folks. People in healthcare have a hard time believing that they're as big of a target as they are because people get into healthcare because they want to help people. And it makes it hard for them to understand that other people aren't like that. Hmm. And I, so I think the focus is then on helping people, not trying to perform security. Not that right. they don't, they don't value security or don't like security. It's just that it's, it's hard sometimes for healthcare workers to wrap their head around just how, like, um, for lack of a better term, bad people can be. You know? Yeah, I, you know, I've heard often that um, when it comes on the healthcare side of things, that if there's a security practice that gets in the way of patient care, you know, that security practice is out of here. You know, a, a, a surgeon in the operating room, you know, if something's going to slow him or her down. You know that their their priorities are clear, and uh, and then that's that's a really interesting insight coming at it from your direction. 
Yes, and it's the same kind of exactly. That's kind of Optum, such a a big company. It it's very interesting to work there because yes, it is healthcare, but we also have a bank, so we do a lot of financial as mm-hmm. well. Um, and our bank isn't retail banks; it's HSAs. Uh, so we hold. I heard that we are the biggest holder of HA, uh, HSA accounts in the nation, mm-hmm. and we're global. So uh, <laughs> it, it's That's never a lot a of bullseyes to have on your back, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, if you want to do healthcare in South America, we probably are touching you in some way, um, right? So places well, like Bra- Brazil, Chile, Colombia, you know. Yeah. Well, let's switch gears a little bit and, and touch on threat intelligence and, and how you dial it into the work you use or the work you do there and, and its importance to you. I kind of feel like I'm an advocate for intelligence at Optum. And what do I mean by, by that is a lot of people seem to, to, especially the more traditional IT security, seem to see it a lot as it's an IT issue, it's a network. So if we block it in one way we've blocked it and that kind of goes back to my conversation earlier my comments earlier about it's about a person and how they will use malware or exploits you know or exploit a system i'm always talking about the people we have to worry about the people aspect of it um so that's how i bring in and that's kind of what i tell them because a lot of times i'll they'll ask me things about the internal network and i'll say there's another team for that I don't, I'm not the expert on that. I'm the expert on the adversary and what we've seen and what we think we may see in, in the, the future. And kind of what I tell them is I'm here to help define what, you know, what the gray area means. And what do I, what do I mean about that yeah. um, is really is there's a bunch of unknowns because we're dealing with people. We're dealing with a piece of malware if it runs like as it's, designed, you know what's going to happen. But it's that person. How are they going to use it? How are they going to modulize it and add other things? Or So we're looking at what's the behavior of people. And when you do that, now you're talking about courses of action. If you want to bring it back to the DOD parlance, it's helping define what that may be. You know, So that's kind of what I, I see our job as. Is, and that's kind of what I say. It's We're here to help define the gray area. And I had another analyst asked me once. So you guys are never hundred percent sure about anything. And I say that is correct (laughs) because if, if we were sure it would just be a fact and then it's not really intelligence because you don't need analysis to define, you know what I mean? Like a a fact. Mm -hmm. So we're there to help, help understand what that gray areas are and what it may mean. Uh, So that's kind of how I see it. Um, and we do have analysts that are, you know, really diving into vulnerabilities and malware and how it's, how things are being exploited. Now, sometimes that is, you know, not necessarily a person. So it's not all just about people. Um, I kind of equate it to most of the Intel, like, especially on the DOD side is really about your adversary. A lot of times it's a terrorist network or a foreign country. But that doesn't mean that you're not looking at the weapon systems. Um, so I kind of see it as that the malware as like a weapon system, just because I, you know, I kind of what I say grow up in the DoD, right? You you kind of de- default back to that, right? Because <laughs> it makes sense, and that's kind of how I see it. You know, most of the team comes out of DoD, so 
it's easy for us to kind of wrap our heads around it kind of that way. And that was not by design. It's kind of defaulted that way. <laughs> no, it's an interesting analogy because to go back, you know, to to your history. I mean, it seems to me like if if you're tracking that submarine, you know, you need to know not only what kind of submarine it is, but what weapons it carries, and maybe even what are the uh, the style of the captain. You know, what 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 tactics does the captain prefer or or, or uh, subscribe to? Uh, and that can vary from submarine to submarine, right? Right, exactly. And I have an actual, what we would in the Navy call a sea story on that. When I first joined uh, the Prowler Squadron, we went to the tactical leadership pro- program in Europe, which is basically a red flag exercise with NATO. And most of NATO at the time that showed up were flying F-16s. But the F-16s, I mean, they're all the same, pretty much. Slight variations in different types of radars or slight weapon system loadout differences. But for the most part, they're the same. And then we did a strike into England one day because we, we would plan strikes and go do these strike missions. I'm not going to say which country, but they were asked. It was kind of foggy that day, and they were asked, why didn't you attack? Like, you went in, but you didn't, like, drop any bombs. And... They said it was foggy, and <laughs> the the UK commander was acting like he was the you know the big general in charge. Uh, said you have an F sixteen, it has radar, and <laughs> and they're like yeah, but we don't train to to that. So uh, that goes on to show that everybody else did. They didn't because they didn't train to it, even though it's the exact same airframe as everybody else pretty much right different people using the same tools in different ways correct so that ton of <laughs> from the dod aviation side to this but the same thing what what threat actor and how are they using the, the malware or the exploit or you know so that kind of goes that's in my mind because of those experiences that's kind of how i see it bringing forward into the cyber world I, it's a, I think that's a really interesting insight it's it's a really interesting analogy what are your recommendations for folks who are trying to figure out how to best integrate this notion of the intelligence cycle uh, into their organization? What do you what do you recommend in terms of getting started and, and um, keeping the whole thing under control and manageable? Here's the insights that I have from the organization from doing this from the outside is really go look at that cycle and those processes. If you don't really know, understand them, you can go Google and pull up. Uh, JP 2.0, which is a joint publication 2.0. It's the DOD manual for joint intelligence, and it defines all that. So that's a good starting point just to go see the cycle and see the, the points. I wouldn't use it as like the Bible, right? Like, like this is, it's a cycle like that. They call it a cycle. Actually, I think it was sometime around 2010. I don't remember exactly when. I'm, <laughs> I'm forgetting. They started calling it the process, uh, not the cycle. And just know that, hey, those are good points. If you have capabilities along that that cycle, you don't have to follow it step by step. Um, That you can kind of flex out of that a little bit. But as long as you're covering those elements, you're safe kind of thing. Not 100%, you know what I mean? Like you you have to make sure that you have it well-developed. But you have to look at your own organization. And I will say... From a learning point from from us at Optum, 
I think we started too strategic and it was hard for folks to understand, you know, what we could provide because we were talking at a too high up from a tactical operational strategic standpoint, we were writing more at the strategic operational level. Hmm. And what do I mean by that? We're writing about adversaries, but your, your SOC person, your analyst is saying, how does that relate to me? Okay. China hacked into, you know, a healthcare entity. So what does that mean to me on a daily basis? So what I would say is maybe you should start tactical first. And what do I mean by that? Helping with the SOC analysts. We made great strides from that when we started embedding analysts at the SOC, working side by side going, you know what, that alert you're seeing, that looks like it's tied to this current campaign. Let me pull up some more data for you to go look for and look for these other indications because this is probably what they're trying to do. And that has by far allowed us to really integrate into operations. Now, from that, then you can step up and start, start talking more about the different threat actors and the campaigns and how they do things. Once you break it down tactically for them and they can see what that, how that you know, translates, uh, that seems to help them understand the higher level is what I call it, you know, from the operational strategic side, because you've already showed them how it transfers at the tactical level. I see threat intelligence also as a knowledge management problem. And I think a lot of folks tend to see it as a aggregation problem. And what do I mean by that is if you look at different types of threat intel platforms, no matter what they are, pretty much, they all kind of talk about how they can aggregate all your different threat feeds and and, and one. Well, that's good, but that's kind of, to me, only hitting the collection phase and maybe that processing phase, but it does not helping me manage the rest of it. Uh, so I call it a more of a knowledge management problem because it kind of goes back to the earlier comments that when we were talking about how do you get the information, how do you process it, and how do you make sure that folks can use it when needed and understand it. Uh, so that's what I mean by that. And it's about also knowledge creation. And, and that Intel is just a specific type of knowledge. It helps you understand it if you don't break it down into an aggregation problem. Because initially what we kind of found at Optum was that folks thought we managed IOC feeds. That's Intel. And that's not really Intel. That's a function. Yeah, we do some of that, but that's not all there is to it. You know? Our thanks to Vince Peeler from Optum for joining us. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll take the time to rate it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by Pratt Street Media with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.